This podcast is sponsored by Glory Lost and Found, the book from the publishers of Airline Weekly, which tells the story of how Delta rose from despair to dominance in the post-9-11 era. Glory Lost and Found is now available as an audiobook on Audible and iTunes. It's also on Kindle and in paperback. Hop on Amazon and search Delta Book. For an airline on top of the world, Delta sure has a lot to worry about. Revenues are weak, oil prices are rising, the threat of terrorism has damaged some overseas markets. But one thing Delta doesn't have to worry about is profits. Yeah, a $1.1 billion quarterly net profit, along with a 17% operating margin, which could have been 21% if it hadn't unwound some expensive wrong-way hedges. Exceptional numbers for the second quarter. And that 17% was fractionally better than last year's Q2 margin. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. I'm Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. It's our favorite time of the year. It's earnings season, and we'll kick it off with Delta as usual. Also, Norwegian reported. Qatar Airways also reported. Wait, wait a minute. Qatar reported? That can't be right. Yeah, better believe it. Oh, how intriguing. It's all coming up right now in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. Delta reported another whiz-bang second quarter last week, another billion-plus in profits, and a 17% operating margin. Like we said in the intro, that 17% was a bit understated by the unwinding of fuel hedges. I know this isn't the most sexy way to start the show, but Seth, can you explain that a bit? I can. And by the way, happy earnings season to you and yours, Jason. Ah, thanks. Yeah. Fuel hedges. Um, you're right. Uh, probably nothing that, that drive uh, Nielsen ratings, mainstream uh, television radio shows, but rather important in the airline industry. After all, fuel uh, is, or at least was, uh, the biggest cost item for almost every airline in the world uh, for some of them now. Labor is bigger, but uh, you know, their fuel hedge policies end up, uh, for a lot of them, driving profits uh, or sometimes lack thereof. Uh, so, so, you know, Basically, I think most of our audience understands it, at least to some degree, some very well, some less so, that you know, airlines can can control their future fuel costs by hedging fuel. It's basically buying insurance, you know, paying a certain amount of money in exchange for sort of limiting the range of, of possibilities. And there are different ways to do it. Essentially, uh, you know, Delta had had made a bunch of bets on, on fuel costs and uh, look, as we know, fuel is, is less expensive now than most people expected it to be, certainly going back a couple of years. So, you know, if you were betting that fuel was going to be rather expensive now, you, know, you might have booked a lot of expensive hedges that now you don't need because the actual fuel prices are a lot less expensive than you expected them to be. And so basically what happened was Delta still had a lot of those bets in place going forward uh, where they were sort of spending money to guarantee themselves exposure against very high fuel prices that just now look a lot less uh, likely to come to be. And so they spent a certain amount of money unwinding those hedges, getting themselves out of those bets um, that they think is going to be less money than they would have ended up spending 
to keep those bets in place. And so they they took took the hit. Now uh, we're talking about a lot of money, uh, you know, six hundred million dollars, if I'm not mistaken. But but again, just sort of betting that that's less. They obviously have the balance sheet to do it, plenty of cash. So they said, yeah, let's let's uh, let's go ahead and and um, swallow that pill now and, and be less exposed. Uh, to the bad hedges going forward, a little more exposed to the fuel market, but they're comfortable with that given where fuel prices are right now. And the question I've been asking about Delta each quarter for a year now, what did we learn about the revenue picture? Yeah, well, uh, you know, one thing that hasn't happened uh, that Delta had hoped to, to have happened by now is to stop the decline of unit revenues. Uh, Jason, we've talked about it in other shows, sort of this race to the bottom between falling fuel prices, that's the good news, and, and falling fares, unit revenues, yields, all that. That's the bad news for, from an airline perspective. So uh, you mentioned in the intro that that you know Delta managed to match, actually even fractionally top its second quarter margin from last year. Well, that's because fuel is, is so much cheaper now than it was during last year's second quarter even. You recall fuel prices continued falling uh, you know, through through the end of the year and to the beginning of this year, and so uh, you know, it's just paying a lot less for fuel. Uh, and so even with uh, you know, unit revenues falling, it, it was able to uh, slightly improve its its uh, profits. I mean, we mentioned the bad hedges and the rest of it, but you net it all out, and it, you know, Delta's paying less for fuel now. Uh, well, at some point here, its fuel prices that it's paying by any measure. Uh, you know, are likely to uh, to not be declining on a year-over-year basis uh, anymore. You know, we're going to have a quarter where we say, "Wow, Delta paid more for fuel than it had done a year ago." Uh, it's almost laws of, of the physics at some point, right? It, it just can't can't fall anymore. And uh, when that happens, and if the fuel unit revenues continue declining, basically add it all up, you're going to get margin pressure. You know, you're going to have a quarter where you say, "Well, Delta still did." rather well, but they did not make more money, not even fractionally, than they did a year earlier, unless something changes with the revenue picture. Now, look, you know, they're fortunate that they don't have some of the bad exposure that some of their competitors have. Not as fortunate as, let's say, Southwest, which, despite some domestic uh, revenue issues, uh, you know, is rather happy to be mostly an all-domestic airline. But they don't have what United has, which is, uh, you know, a giant hub in Houston used to be great. Now, uh, a really tough market exposure to uh, a lot of Asian markets that are that are really problematic. American, uh, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, not quite as oil heavy as Houston, but uh, still a lot of oil money there and all kinds of low cost and ultra low cost competition there. Uh, and oh, not to mention a hub in Miami used to be great. Uh, all that Latin American exposure now, of course, that. Uh, has been problematic. So, you know, Delta doesn't have these very severe pockets of pain that uh, that those two airlines have. No surprise, it's, it's, its unit revenue declines have been less than those airlines. But again, when Delta last year, mid-year, was, was uh, saying it hoped by the end of last year to get its hands around the unit revenue declines and stop them. And here we are, you know, mid-2016. And, um, yeah, that's that's not really in sight. Still, um, still measurable unit revenue declines. Something that I found interesting: Delta said it expects this summer to be the most profitable ever in the transatlantic market. This is all pleasantly bullish in light of recent events in Paris and Brussels. Yeah, and, and uh, you know we should clarify, Jason. They made those comments uh, last Thursday morning. Uh, the 14th of July, and it was that night that the attack in Nice happened. Now, I mean, look, already some awful things had happened, and they felt comfortable making those comments. So, uh, so it's been resilient up to just 
stating the fact here that um, it doesn't take into account that most recent uh, attack, which uh, you know, to one degree or another, uh, obviously can't be good for for uh, for demand. And always difficult to talk about these things without uh, you know first and foremost just thinking about you know the, the more important consequences the, uh, the people and their families. But um, yeah, in terms of airlines, that's just another thing that's uh, not going to be helpful this summer. But had at least been and, and may still be resilient. We'll hear if any of the airlines reporting this week have an early read on on uh, if Nice had any impact on on bookings. But um, you know, basically, Jason, there the story of you know partly the same. I mean, look, fuel cost a lot less now than it did uh, in, in past summers. And, and that gives airlines a huge head start. You know, a lot else can go wrong. Uh, you know, you, you can you can have Norwegian and all the other things that, that are problematic for airlines uh, like Delta across the Atlantic. And if you're paying a lot less for fuel, uh, they still do uh, rather well. Um, you know, Delta has excellent joint ventures, the huge one with Air France, KLM and Alitalia, the smaller but very important and, and, you know, by all appearances, very successful one, too, with Virgin Atlantic, of which it also owns 49 percent. And so you have a market that, you know, despite the new competition from Norwegian, you know, from Wow Air and, and others, other independent competitors, is is rather consolidated. Uh, one of those independent, consol- uh, former, formerly independent competitors is no longer independent. I'm talking about Aer Lingus, now, now part of uh of uh, IAG. So, uh, you know, that's been helpful too, because they were one of those that was kind of out there uh, with a fair amount of capacity and, and aggressive pricing. They're no longer competing independently. So transatlantic, uh, at least relatively in, in terms of global markets, still seems like the place to be despite everything with that asterisk that I mentioned that we'll have to hear if there's been any further deterioration after Nice. And Delta continues to grow in the booming Seattle and Los Angeles markets. Those are two very competitive markets. Very competitive indeed. You know, And Delta speaks optimistically about them. It's, uh, I mean, the, hard to imagine that these are markets that are driving Delta's profits. Uh, Delta, first of all, more than more than American or United, um, has much more of the airline, you know, concentrated at one hub. Atlanta, of course, I mean, so sort of as goes Atlanta, so goes Delta. And, uh, you know, Atlanta more often than not is, is, is a, a very good place to be. And so, you know, some other things can go wrong and just not matter uh, that much. Um, so, yeah, you know, look, Seattle, uh, you know, you're talking about playing second fiddle in Seattle to a, a, uh, a, a shrewd and highly profitable airline, Alaska. Not a lot of places in the world where an airline runs sort of a, a, a much smaller second fiddle hub and does very well with it, unless perhaps it has much lower costs than the larger airline at that hub. Let's say what AirTran used to do in Atlanta, of all places. Uh, you know, that's not the case in Seattle. Um, so it's it's uh, you know, it's it's probably still a struggle. You know, perhaps it's getting better. You know, Delta has calculated that that the strategic benefit of doing what it's doing there is worth sustaining a hub that's you know probably never going to be driving the airline's profits. Uh, Los Angeles, you mentioned hyper competitive also. One of those places where none of those airlines there, and I'm talking, you know, Delta and American going fiercely at each other, Southwest huge there, especially when you count the other airports in the in the basin and others, um, United sort of focused more uh, than ever in San Francisco. But, uh, you know, Los Angeles, not the place where any one of those airlines is probably ever going to put up outsized profits. It's, it's just too competitive for that. But, and I think, Jason, this is what you're getting to, those at least are markets where there is very strong demand. So, you know, where would you rather be? Well, I mentioned San Francisco. That's a great place to be. And, and United's clearly doing well there. But I mentioned earlier, Houston, uh, you know, 
So at least um, if you're going to be in very competitive markets, you know, let them be places where uh, where demand is very strong. And, and that is is most certainly the case in, in Los Angeles and Seattle to uh, two places where the local economies are just doing well. And here's a question that rather uniquely comes with Delta earnings reports. How are the airlines operations affecting financial performance? Well, they say, uh, you know, the superior operations are, are, are driving huge revenue premiums. I think Ed Bastian, their CEO, if, if I recall back at Media Day uh, a few months ago, said, you know, uh, and they've, they've given similar figures at other points in time, something like a 10 percent revenue premium to the industry, uh, which at one point, uh, you know, less than a decade ago was was a 10 percent revenue deficit. And he put it like this. He said, you know, if, if, if it's a $40 billion company, you know, that swing from down 10% to up 10% means $8 billion. Now, I mean, you can quibble with the with the individual numbers uh, to some degree or another. Um, you know, yeah, it, it matters and it becomes a virtuous cycle because when you're on time and you're not losing people's bags, I mean, on one hand, you're just, uh, uh, there's a cost benefit to that because recovering from irregular operations is, is very expensive. So, you know, Delta's just spending less money on hotel rooms for in inconvenienced passengers and, you know, stranded crew and all that. And, uh, you know, driving bags out to, to people's homes when they when they arrive later. And then passengers will um, will pay more uh, for, for an airline that's that's running on time. So there's that question out there, you know, can anybody else close the gap with them? Um, and, and, you know, certainly, uh, over the years, we've seen all kinds of improbable things happen, uh, not least Delta's own turnaround. But for right now, yeah, they, they have a, a pretty solid lead over um, over all their their big competitors in, in the U.S. And that's even before, you know, the benefits of, of uh, radio frequency ID tags on bags and you know things like that that are, should further improve the operation. So. Uh, so, yeah, no uh, operations. Um, you know, when you talk about operations and, and, and sort of the commercial side of the industry, uh, sometimes it's very hard to separate them because um, uh, operations, particularly when they are either remarkably good or remarkably bad operations, are indeed a, a, a commercial issue. I don't want to go too deeply into the C-Series purchase because we've covered it a lot in the lounge. But real quick, uh, we've always presumed Delta got a great deal. However, in this week's issue, we use the phrase bargain of a lifetime regarding the C-Series. Maybe it's just poetic license, but uh, that phrase got me wondering if you've learned something more about the price they're paying. No, I, I mean, it's 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 just, you know, they've they've said that and, and, uh, uh, and there's every reason to believe it. You know, Delta, more than almost any other airline, is not dazzled by new planes. I mean, they'll they're happy to have them, uh, you know, by by a, by a very new technology. But they're also, you know, happy to have whatever makes sense when you when you add it all up. And uh, yeah, here you had uh, Bombardier in a position where it just it just had to get somebody to uh, to take these aircraft. And uh, you know, it, it's uh, I mean, nobody involved in, in that transaction has been has made any uh, secret of the fact that um, Delta got very very favorable pricing. So the point, Jason, by the way, where you know, um, Embraer Bombardier's uh, most direct competitor, although the C-Series arguably is, is a competitor against Airbus and Boeing, too. Um, you know, Embraer has been complaining um, that this everything that's happened at Bombardier, um, you know, sort of the, the government ownership recapitalization, you know, what they see as subsidies, you know, that all this violates uh, trade rules in, in the world. So, yeah, when you when you look at all the evidence and you know, listen to everybody involved in it, um, there's just no reason to think that uh, Delta 
got anything less than an extraordinarily good deal on that. And in doing so, probably uh, did a big favor to the industry. Look, if, if the C-Series becomes, uh, for the industry, I should say, if the C-Series becomes viable, you know, let's say if Bombardier eventually even builds a bigger version, you know, they've talked about a CS500 perhaps uh, in addition to the 100 and the 300. You know, if every, if every time an airline goes out to bid on, you know, goes to market for uh, for narrow body aircraft, there's a third player instead of just the two Airbus and Boeing. You know, hard to overstate the impact of that on uh, aircraft pricing. Um, if for decades to come, there's now another viable competitor. You know, Delta would benefit from that certainly, but uh, but so would everybody else. Um, so uh, yeah, we'll 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 see. This is one of those where it, it's going to be very interesting to see what history says about uh, about this. But uh, yeah, no, I, I don't I don't think I think the risk uh, that they took on this is probably remarkably low um, for buying so many airplanes. And how about Delta's labor picture? Well, their labor costs are are rising. You know, it's been offset by uh, by the fuel cost savings. But, uh, you know, those rising costs, that's despite them still being in uh, mediation with their pilots. Uh, you know, they don't have a new pilot deal. Um, so basically the pilots are still being paid under their old contract, which had the pilots voted to approve what was on the table last year, they would be getting paid um, considerably more. Uh, then they are getting paid, you know, so, so that's certainly a threat. I mean, at some point here, there's going to be a contract, uh, and it's going to cost more than the, uh, than, than the, the current one. U.S. airlines understand this. You can't put up the kinds of profits that they're putting up without expecting that, uh, you know, you're going to be sharing some more of that, uh, one way or another with your employees, you know, whether it's literally profit sharing or whether it's just, you know, more generous compensation. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's definitely out there and, and, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see if they can continue to sort of strike this, the right balance. Um, all the airlines where, uh, um, uh, yes, you know, they're, they're paying their employees better. Um, but without, without being any real big threat to these, uh, uh, really historically high profits that they continue reporting. All in all, does Delta have a lot to worry about? Well, uh, sure, it's an airline, you know, and this is an industry that is uh, that is always prone to uh, to uh, all kinds of you know cost and demand shocks. But having said that, uh, it has a lot less to worry about than most other airlines in the world. And you know, it seems to feel this is something that um, you know American has very loudly said too that you know that things really are different. You know that if God forbid a 9/11 type thing happened now. Um, although uh, there would be obvious impact, it wouldn't be as bad as it was that time, you know, that if there were another global financial crisis, if there were another fuel spike and all that, that the impacts this time would not be what they were uh, during the previous times. Um, thanks to we had airline weekly call the three C's uh, that have restructured the uh, U.S. airline industry. Those are consolidation, you know, mergers, acquisitions, capacity constraints and charging extra for uh for lots of pro- products and services uh, otherwise known as ancillaries but, but jason that's ancillary and service c so we you know uh so yeah but um it uh <laughs> yeah so uh you know it, the industry is really restructured and um at least for an airline they have remarkably little to worry about um, both because of all of that and and because of of uh, some of some of the things that are unique to delta okay before we move on let me 
give you one reflective, ponderous question. Uh, so Delta did well, and it's probably going to be another really good quarter for most of the U.S. carriers, JetBlue, Southwest, Alaska, American, Allegiant. And barring a black swan, the third quarter will probably be good too. And this has been going on a couple of years. Uh, we've said it before, the, the, for U.S. carriers, this has been a golden age. So my question is, when the history is written about this golden age, what will it say and what will it have meant to the U.S. transportation system? Yeah, and first of all, by the way, Jason, to that list of airlines that you uh, that you mentioned, that'll you know surely to one degree or another reported great results. You know, add to that United, um, which has guided uh, just uh, you know, kind of quietly United sort of uh, uh, you know we'll have to see all the details sort of you know, closing the gap somewhat with, with, with American by all accounts in the, uh, or by all appearances, I should say in the second quarter. Yeah. It's, it, you know, look, I, I, I'm sure I look at the world through airline color glasses and it's hard for me to compare it, compare, this, <laughs> compare this industry to, uh, to every other, but it's, uh, no, it's, it's, it's a remarkable achievement, uh, to have taken an industry that is so exposed to so much, uh, that has, uh, you know, so relatively little control over its product um, in what remains, um, despite deregulation, look, that was commercial deregulation, but what remains a highly regulated industry for uh, for, for good reason, you know, for safety. And I mean, to, to one degree or another, this is, an, this is an industry where there's always going to be all kinds of government involvement um, in, in a way that uh, that there's not in, in some other industries. And to have, uh, despite all of it, despite the low barriers to entry um, and, and so forth, uh, managed to uh, to do things as, as, as well as they're doing them now in a way that has generally been good for, you know, for, for shareholders, yes, um, but also for employees and also, uh, I, know, I know not everybody feels this way, but I would say also for customers, uh, really remarkable. And just to explain, I would say for customers, you know, I know people will romanticize uh, the, the, the way things used to be. Um, and, and look, you know, if, if, uh, if your definition of, of, of a airline industry is a, you know, a free hot, bad meal and economy on a, on a short haul flight, um, the industry's worse now, you know, you know, if it's, um, if, if it's the ability to check lots of bags, uh, you know, without paying extra for it. Yeah. On most airlines it's worse, but if it's safety, well, it's, it's off the charts better now. Um, if it's reliability, certainly, uh, we talked before about Delta. I mean, those numbers that Delta is putting up are, are, are just unheard of. And those are tied to their profits because Delta was the first of these giant airlines to, uh, to merge and turn itself around. And it was able to reinvest uh, a lot of money into these remarkably reliable operations planes are cleaner and they, you know, the flights are on time. They're not losing your bags and all that. And again, all the other sort of to varying degrees are, 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 are catching up. So, you know, you're, you're talking about an industry that is far safer now than it was um, even, let's say, in the 1990s when we then thought it was impossible for it to get any safer and more reliable. And for all of that, you pay less than you've paid at basically almost any time in uh, any other time in history, uh, which Jason, that's a development just here in the past year or two. Uh, you know, if we were having this conversation two years ago, I would have had to say, well, you know, you're getting more, but but yeah, you're paying more because for the first time ever, really, fares in inflation-adjusted terms had started rising. Um, but now that's not the case anymore. Now they're falling. You know, now they're back near their all-time lows in, in real terms. So yeah, hard, hard to argue that it's been anything but. Um, but good for certainly investors by almost any standard employees too, uh, and and customers. 
Moving on to Norwegian, who reported a $91 million net profit. But excluding some special items, its operating margin was just 8%. That's an improvement over the same quarter last year, which was 7%. Also, it managed to grow revenues faster than ASK capacity. So it sounds like everything is terrific at Norwegian? Yeah, it sounds like if, if you're asking that question, it's because you know that it's not. You know, the story there is the same. Uh, fast growth, only sort of questionably justifiable growth. Uh, in the context of you know an airline that's just still putting up very mediocre margins, um, Jason, you know the story in Europe. Uh, you need to have a great spring and summer uh, to make up for uh, what's usually a rough autumn and, and winter. Norwegian, uh, as you said, improved a bit this year, but last year they ended up with uh, less than a four percent operating margin for the whole year. You know, context Ryanair was you know twenty something percent and the rest of it. So it's uh, an airline that still has a lot to prove, and and those numbers from this second quarter uh, don't inspire confidence that this whole year is uh, is going to look a whole lot better than last. You know, especially with the prospect of of. Uh, you know, fuel prices stabilizing and, uh, you know, perhaps rising late last year. Of course, they got the benefit of prices that were continuing to fall. Uh, also, don't forget the Norwegian kroner has been a very weak currency. Uh, so that mitigates the benefit of cheap fuel. You know, it doesn't fuel doesn't look as cheap when uh, when you're trading in, in a uh, devalued currency as they are. We mentioned in Airline Weekly how Norwegian is currently limited where it can fly. How big of a deal is that? And that... Uh... Well, it feels like a big deal to me. First of all, all airlines are are limited where they can fly around the world. It's it's uh, you know it's not really the airlines themselves. It's countries with with bilateral agreements. So Norwegian um, right now, before Brexit, as things stand, can fly everywhere it wants to fly. Basically, by all appearances, I'm talking first to just about the U.S. But what it wants is to be able to use these different subsidiaries that it's set up uh, to operate uh, certain markets. You know, it says that uh, it wants to do that because of route rights, uh, because that although the U.S. basically sees any European country, that, including those that aren't in the EU but are within the aviation area, as um, as you know, just like any other that uh, other countries don't. And, and Norwegian gave the example of Canada, for example, um, where it, it where it is limited and where, you know, there's a difference between a Norwegian carrier, an Irish carrier and, and a uh, British carrier. And now on top of all that, of course, because of Brexit, um, you know, who knows what's going to end up being the case um, in terms of whether it's just a financial thing that, yeah, they would rather use a different subsidiary to fly to the U.S., um, you know, rather than have to fly on, say, their Norwegian certificate, you know, and the higher cost that that entails in terms of, uh, you know, crews and whatnot, or whether they really won't be able to fly uh, to the U.S. unless they're able to fly there with these other subsidiaries. So um, so it, it, it's it's not that it's anything specific to Norwegian per se, except that Norwegian is the airline that's sort of, you know, based in Norway, which, yeah, is within the, uh, you know, the aviation area and a party to U.S. EU open skies, but it's not in the EU and they want to fly from the U.K., which you know, is, is leaving the EU and all of that. So uh, ostensibly, it shouldn't matter anymore to them than it should to anybody else because everybody's covered by the same rules. But practically speaking, because of their aspirations, it, it does mean more to them. Norwegian says it's growing ASKs by 18% this year. Obviously, that's rather aggressive. Are Norwegian's plans looking more or less sustainable from when we've discussed them prior? 
Well, um, look, you mentioned it before, you know, revenue kind of keeping pace with uh, capacity growth. So, well, from that standpoint, um, at least things aren't further deteriorating. Look, Jason, it's it's uh, you know, we've 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 seen it uh, at other airlines that grow very rapidly, you know, sort of without the profits to show for it, that a very powerful way to uh, address that is to let the demand catch up to the supply. In other words, by by growing more slowly, um, you know, there, there was a period where Virgin America, of course, now being acquired by Alaska, but Virgin America, uh, kind of like Norwegian, broadly speaking, in the sense that it was this very fast growing airline that was profitable, but, but, but a laggard, you know, compared to all its peers. Um, a period, Jason, when um, they stopped growing so rapidly, in fact, they basically stopped growing at all, uh, deferred some aircraft deliveries. And guess what happened? The the demand did catch up to the supply and they started doing a lot better. Then they had to start taking all the aircraft deliveries that they had deferred and growing quickly again. And guess what? You know, they were uh, back in the in the same old position. So, you know, when you have just this this rapidly incoming stream of aircraft and you have to find productive uses for them, you know, very quickly and you have a very large percentage of your capacity deployed in immature markets, it, it, it's tough. Uh, and that's the situation that they're in. So, um, you know, if they were to grow more slowly, that would um, be a problem on the cost side, because, again, something else we've discussed in the past, you know, when you're growing, you're sort of putting downward pressure on your unit cost, which is which is good from a cost perspective. You're you know, you're, you're just achieving scale. Um, so they might have to take some little cost. But, um, you know, the lesson from elsewhere in the world is that when you do that, it's very helpful for your unit revenues and uh, and often the positive impact on unit revenues of growing more slowly can more than offset the negative impact on unit costs. Last question for Norwegian. Does the report, which is the first out of Europe, does it signal anything about the strengths or weaknesses in the European market in the second quarter? Well, uh, I, I mean, look, the fact that their margins didn't deteriorate is is, is good, but they are just such a uh, such a funny beast, you know, with so many different things going on there. Obviously, low cost, long haul. They have a leasing unit uh, that they which they use to uh, I mean, believe it or not, as, as quickly as they're growing, um, they would actually be growing more quickly as an airline if they weren't taking some of the incoming aircraft and leasing them out to other airlines. And, you know, uh, so they have that. I guess what I'm saying is they're certainly not a bellwether for for European airlines. Um, also, you know, of course, they are that their exposure skews towards Scandinavia. I mean, look, that's far from the only place that they are. They have, you know, huge presence in, in Spain, including capacity. It doesn't such Scandinavia and so forth. You know, Scandinavia place where uh, last year capacity was rather constrained. Um, uh, not a lot of growth there this year. Uh, it's it's uh, it's growing very rapidly. And so I guess what I'm saying is that there's enough unique about them that it's hard to to, to try to read too much into that in terms of extrapolating what, what's going on elsewhere in Europe. Uh, although in the broadest sense of all, uh, it's certainly good to see that they, uh, you know, haven't at least taken a turn for the worse. Okay. Moving on to one that I'm rather excited about. Uh, for the first time, Qatar Airways reported full year earnings for the year ending in March. Before we get into the numbers, why did they do this? Or maybe maybe I should ask, why haven't they done this before? And was it a bona fide earnings report? Or as they say in Chicago, was it legit? Uh, well, um, 
you know, why they do it. Uh, yes, a lot of questions here, Jason. Let me try to remember them all. <laughs> why did they do it? Um, uh, you know, well, I mean, they probably feel pressured to uh, at least not have people be able to say about them that they don't report earnings. So they said, okay, well, let's, let's, let's tick that box and start reporting earnings. You know, why hadn't they done it before? Well, it, you know, I, I suppose they're just, they just didn't feel it was to their benefit to 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 do that. Um, they didn't have to because they're not a traded company or anything like that. So, uh, you know, probably some somewhere between, uh, you know, not feeling any need to be more transparent about their business than they need to be. And I mean, Jason, to be fair, there's you know lots of private companies in the world that don't report earnings just because they don't have to. You know, and it, it, sure, it takes there's effort involved in in in, in doing all of that and disclosing that. That if you don't have to, you might just feel like uh, why bother? Bona fide earnings support. Well, they're audited financial statements. I mean, the broadest sense, the broadest sense of all, it's uh, you know Ernst and Young. There, there's uh, the the numbers add up to something, but doesn't look a lot like what you might see from well, let's say you know Delta or, or Norwegian, which we just uh, which we just covered, where you know you you could pretty much learn everything you um you need to know about those airlines uh, from their uh, from their earnings report, minus of course some trade secrets and so forth that uh, you know. That, that no company is going to report. Okay, getting into the numbers, Qatar reported a 9% operating margin for the year, but that comes with a grain of salt, doesn't it? Oh, more than a grain, more like a more like a salt mine. Yeah. Free salt. Yeah, and this is and this is what I was getting at. You know, it, well where, where do I start? I mean, first of all, they they're a conglomerate that look, they're not the only airline in the world that does things that aren't um, just sort of the core flying business. I mean, Lufthansa, for one, you know, has, has, has lots of uh, other activities. Um, uh, you know, many airlines around the world do. But some of their activities are, are much farther afield than, you know, than anything Lufthansa is, is, is doing. I mean, for example, they are the, if I understand correctly, the monopoly distributor of alcohol within, within the country. Qatar. So, so they, uh, and to be clear, I'm not talking about just, you know, in flight or airport or anything. I'm talking about just, just, you know, in the country. So, you know, what we cannot tell from the earnings report, first of all, is, is exactly what that meant to their profits, things like that. I mean, that's the, that's the example I'm giving. It's not the only thing, you know, it, it would be fair to speculate that, you know, maybe that, that maybe being the monopoly alcohol supplier to the country is more profitable than, uh, you know, than some of the, the flying operations, you know, give, given some of what's... Uh, Aer Lingus would like that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, can you imagine? Um, and then beyond that, there was this, it, it, if you looked at, you know, we always, Jason, we were talking about operating margin, and we'll talk about, you know, net profits and so forth. So, you know, there, there are certain things that are that are just within an operating profit that, that most airlines, I mean, with 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 limited exceptions, most airlines all agree. OK, this is operating. This is net. generally speaking, you know, most of the business is 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 operating. And then the the only stuff that's you know not within operating, but is within net tends to be financial, uh, you know, kind of stuff, interest costs, for example, and, and, and things, things of that nature. But then Qatar put a whole bunch of what they called administrative costs 
uh, into the non-operating cost. I mean, a, a very significant amount of money, enough that um, uh, you know, if you moved it into operating, it they wouldn't have had an operating profit at all, uh, you know, as opposed to that nine percent margin that you mentioned. Um, you know, hard to know exactly what what all that is, but I can just tell you that most airlines, you know, any kind of administrative cost, like I said, anything anything that's that's not sort of finance and all that would be in in uh, operating costs. So. Uh, so look, Jason, it's, it's tough when you try to, and this is what we, we try to do here is, um, you know, analyze and be able to sort of, you know, standardize things so we can have some kind of meaningful comparison between airlines in different parts of the world and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and obviously the old joke about how, you know, an economist has a sense of humor because he uses a, a, a decimal point, right? I mean, you could certainly say that about an airline analyst too, uh, trying to compare airlines from very different regions. But, you know, although it's never going to be a perfect comparison, this one is just a tougher one than uh, than most other airlines that we uh, that that we look at that at least resemble each other to some degree more than uh, more than this one does uh, to most of those other airlines. My excitement for this report is waning. <laughs> Uh, one thing in the report, it sounds like they've essentially swapped their fuel savings for weakness in their oil markets. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no surprise there. It's it's you know that's obviously going to be the case for uh, you know for Emirates for Etihad also. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the story. You know, cheap oil is terrible for their home region. A lot of their business is six freedom flying. Well, basically all their business, almost almost all their business is six freedom flying. Um, but in some cases, connecting places that are nowhere near their part of the world, you know, people flying between Europe and, and Australia and so forth. But, um, but you know, I mean, they, they have a, a, a strong uh, short haul business flying to places like Saudi Arabia and so forth. And, you know, obviously, um, weak oil is, is awful for revenues there. But on the other hand, they're an airline. They uh, buy fuel just like everybody else. And uh, they benefit immensely from, uh, from uh, cheaper fuel. Um, and so, Jason, you know, with that, they uh, they do become the second of the big three in the Gulf to to report audited financial statements at, at least. Only Etihad now doesn't do that with all of those huge asterisks that uh, that I mentioned. But um, I just sort of feel responsible to say that despite all despite all the reasons why they're uh, still far from the most transparent airline in the world, the world keeps getting a little more transparent. Um, and uh, in the more than a decade that you know I've been doing this, we know a lot more about a lot more airlines in the world uh, than than we used to. Uh, you know, some just starting from farther behind than others. Qatar certainly hasn't lost its enthusiasm. It added 13 cities last year, and management is looking to add 17 more this year. It's got 110 Boeing 777Xs on order. I'll say that again. 110 triple sevens. It's got 80 A350s on order. I think you mentioned last week that you were interested interested in seeing what the Gulf carriers did or didn't do at the Farnborough Air Show, and and they didn't do anything. Uh, yeah, and and that that's certainly one of the headlines out of Farnborough, which overall was uh, quieter than than in past years. Last year already in Paris had been, had been quieter than uh, pri- prior years, but yeah, that was. Um, noteworthy uh, now i mean look part of it just is that when you've got that many aircraft on order as you just mentioned uh and you could do that same kind of list for any of the you know uh, emirates another i don't know 88380s uh still coming not to mention everything else you know you could just say well they're they're kind of taken care of for a while um and that's true for what it's worth yeah uh, none there just overall 
a lot quieter. Virgin Atlantic ordered some uh, some A350s. Chinese carriers uh, ordered a bunch of aircraft, including some uh, Boeing wide bodies, uh, a few big narrow body orders. Air Asia, another you know 100 A320s from. Uh, from Airbus and uh, and so forth. So so there were orders, but but yeah, no, de- definitely uh, definitely quieter uh, than it's been. And um, you know, in terms of what that means, we'll we'll have to uh, you know, this is one where we'll we'll know at some point in the future whether that signaled something else or whether it was simply that uh, airlines had what they needed and manufacturers uh, you know have their order books filled for years anyway, but and are as as they as they say, sort of more interested than in deliveries than uh, than orders. Uh, but at some point here, it's going to get tough for them, particularly when they um, uh, get to the end of, you know, if you're Boeing trying to, you know, uh, fill your 777-300ER delivery slots before the Xs start coming out and uh, struggling to do that and, and so forth. Um, it could, could be some pressure uh, for them and uh, generally pressure for the airframe manufacturers and for the engine manufacturers and so forth is, uh, you know, can be good news for airlines, especially those that have been rather patient about waiting for uh, aircraft values to uh, to fall to, to make their move. I still like Qatar Airways' no-limit attitude. But here in the Airline Weekly Lounge, we know our limits, and we are out of time. This concludes Episode 49, but take heart, Episode 50 is only a week away. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. Thanks for stopping by. Do they really say legit in Chicago? Well, Al Capone surely did. At least the movie version did. 